Columbia Technology Ventures presents SBIRs and STTRs, The Inside Story, with Javier Sade, former Associate Administrator for the U.S. Small Business Administration. For more information, visit techventures.columbia.edu. Good morning to all of you. I'm going to want to get to know you after the, uh, the talk. Um, so what we're going to talk about is uh, sort of a bit of uh, setup around the history of this program, uh, innovation broadly defined, and then some very specifics around the program. So before I get going, uh, everybody here familiar with the program? Yes? OK. So um, just a bit of uh, history, a bit about myself and then uh, about the sort of the history of the program and we'll get, get into specifics. Um, it started at NSF by Mr. Tibbetts in 1978, uh, pioneering basically what he thought was a way to get small companies uh, that were STEM driven uh, to receive grants from the federal government. Because typically, when you think about grants in the federal government, you think about very large universities, Boeing, Raytheon, General Electric, you name it. And then small companies have a tough time doing it. So this uh, was tried out, and it was a great success. And President Reagan signed it into law in 1982. And essentially, uh, the program grew into what it is today. So today, uh, the federal government spends about two and a half to three percent of its budget in to federal federally funded research and development, and that's somewhere between 120 and 140 billion with a B dollars uh, on all kinds of fields of endeavor. The way the program works is that the 11 agencies with the largest R&D budgets uh, have to set aside a portion of their R&D budgets, and it's mandated by Congress, uh, to fund research and development. Some of it is very, very basic science and very big R, so kind of NSF. And some of it is extremely applied research and more development uh, DOD. And there's gradients in between. Um, that number right now, is the, the number, the set aside is 2.9% with some caps and some different things. So essentially, the pool of capital available through the program uh, for small businesses is about two and a half to $3 billion. I ran the program across the entire federal government. Uh, and uh, the program's uh, statutory um, uh, authorization and oversight is at the Small Business Administration. And that makes sense because the, one of the pillars of the program is to actually create companies around the research that then create jobs. Jobs engender economic development. Economic development generates taxes, right? So it's a, it's a way for government to seed very, very early stage technologies and eventually get out of the way. So play a critical role doing that. Um, and uh, one of the things I did while I was in uh, serving the president was making sure that we thought about the program as one program. Because you, if you're familiar with the program, everybody thinks about NIH as BIR. And even within NIH, there's the National Cancer Institute. There's Institute of Aging. There's uh, uh, neurological Institute. In, in NIH alone, there's 26 institutes that have dollars to put to SBIR. And that's just NIH. DOD, which is 10 times bigger, um, has a lot of different pockets. DARPA, Army, Navy, you name it. So it's a very complicated uh, program to administer. But one of the things we tried to do was make sure that 
we were running, we were basically looking at best practices across all the federal agencies um, to uh, apply them to the program. Uh, and one of the things we did was brand it under one umbrella. Uh, we came up with a term, America's Seed Fund. It's before venture capital, right? If you know the venture capital route, it's typically a seed round that's an angel round, then it goes to series A, series B, series B, D, so on and so forth. This is before that. This, this, this money helps de-risk uh, the technology uh, development cycle. And once some of that risk is taken away, there comes either the licensing of a technology or the creation of a company around it. Um, and some very famous and very large companies now that would never qualify for SBIRs were born out of SBIRs. I was telling somebody today that the biggest three biotech firms in the world were born out of a couple scientists playing with beakers. Uh, and the story I always tell, uh, back up for a second, um, the program since inception has invested about $45 billion into about 150,000 small companies in the country. So 45 billion-ish. Biogen, which is one of those three biotechs, uh, Rituxin is one of their drugs, and that drug is used for the treatment of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. The reason I use that example is twofold. One, Rituxin saved my father eight years ago, and he's been in remission ever since. Second, Biogen alone is worth $80 billion. So one company out of 150,000 companies has returned the taxpayer, because remember where the money's coming from, all of us. It's taxpayer money, right? It's the budget of the United States, which we pay. Uh, one company out of 150,000 has returned the taxpayer's investment twice. If I look at the top 10, which includes Symantec, Qualcomm, um, Genentech, Amgen, those are the other two biotechs. It's 10, just 10 out of the 150,000 companies, and these are outliers. We all hope that our discoveries are gonna become as big as something to command uh, that much market cap, but it's about $300 billion if you look at the value of those companies, which is eight times what the taxpayers have invested. That's 10 out of 150,000. So anyway, uh, it's a very, very, uh, from a government perspective, it's a very effective program. From the perspective of private sector, sometimes not as much, and I'll tell you why. One of the things that when we look at research, well, let me back up. One of the things that I realized was that for people to learn about the BIR, they had to go to 10,000 different places to learn. There were websites everywhere, and one of the things we did is like, well, let's make, make a centralized website, right? I ran the program. Uh, we should have a website that acts as a gateway and as a centralized quarterback of all the information. So the first thing I'll point you to is a revamped, one of the last things I did before I, I uh, left the administration was redo the website, sbir.gov. And that website, compared to private sector websites, still leaves something to be desired, but compared to what we had before, much, much better, much slicker, uh, and, uh, and a centralized place to learn. And the reason I say that is because if you're interested in advanced materials, or in blood substitutes, or in communications from space, you name it, that research, you know, you immediately, the people that do biotech and stuff immediately go to NIH or NSF. But the fact is that half of the SBIR program is defense. And defense, guess who needs a lot of blood substitutes in, in combat? The Army, right? And Navy. So they fund things that you wouldn't think about. So one of the things I, I realized was, well, wait, if you're a researcher, do you care really where the money comes from? You don't. So if that's the case, then let's make it user-friendly so that if you're somebody that's in a very thin vertical researching something specific, you can put in, and this is not any rocket science, this has been going on for 10 years, you know, uh, tagged, tagged search, 
we didn't have it before, now we have it, where you put it into the website, and for the most part, it captures all the solicitations. Say you're doing something with the Zika virus, which uh, NIH, NSF, DHS, Department of Homeland Security, because it's a security issue and we have health problems. There, there could be pockets investing in trying to figure out the cure or the treatment for Zika. Um, that could be anywhere. So you put it in and you'll see where all the solicitations are. So that's kind of a very high broad view of the, uh, of the program. Um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, has anybody here received an SBIR before? Okay. Um, so does it make sense for me to walk through how the process works specifically? Okay. So the three pillars of the program are advancing the frontiers of human knowledge, so research and development, science-driven discovery. The second is to uh, create jobs, and that is done by commercializing the technologies. And third is by having, and this is a broader, broader view, by staying ahead of the curve on the innovation side, our country is stronger, right? The reason we are the undisputed leader, even though China's throwing a lot of money at it, Europe, the EU actually created a program called Horizon 2020, almost exactly like SBIR. So it's not unrivaled, but it's undisputed. We're the undisputed innovation uh, engine of the world because we put money towards it. There's, and we have the best people. So the way the program works is relatively simple in concept. Um, every pocket of research and development dollars that participates in SBIR is required to send out what's called a solicitation. And solicitations for research take the shape of a, here's my problem, here's what I want the researcher to do, you have until X date to submit your proposal. Uh, so I'm very, I'm oversimplifying it. And again, SBIR.gov is very clear as to how to do it and what your eligibility. Uh, but let me back up. Before I tell you about the process, I'm gonna tell you about eligibility. Um, you have to be a small business concern. And by a small business concern, it could be as simple as a New York City LLC, which you own, right? And that costs 50 bucks to do. Uh, but you have to be a small business concern defined by statute, so less than 500, and many, of, many of them that apply are one or two people. Uh, you have to be 51% or more owned by, an, uh, by American uh, entities or people, right? So you can have an LLC that's owned by two companies and 51% of the total ownership, if you look at the ownership of a company, the capital stock of a company, you have to be 51% uh, American. Um, you also <clears throat> have to be a for-profit concern. Not-for-profits don't apply, and the whole point is that uh, you want it to be uh, a commercial endeavor. Um, you have the best mousetrap to solve a problem or to solve a, cha a scientific challenge. Solicitations go out. You essentially have to write a grant. And most of these uh, are structured as grant awards. Um, and to be successful in attaining the grant, as opposed to a regular, I would say, research project, is that you have to have a pretty good semblance of what the business model is. So as opposed to the typical research grant where it's all about the science and the discovery, this one has an aspect of um, the reason we believe our way of discovery is gonna be best is because we're gonna be able to create a company around this that's gonna do X, Y, and Z. So a lot of people that are connected to universities, scientists connected to universities, they typically make uh, a partnership or they find somebody that has business experience. Um, and th those two are equally important, even though for you to get the research and development, the price of admission is the science, 
There's no question about it. But a business mind is sometimes critical uh, to getting the awards. Um, in terms of the paths to commercialization, uh, there's basically two ways in which the government looks at commercialization of a technology. One is licensing a patent or patenting your technology and licensing. And the other one is attracting investment or sell selling. Um, so the program is structured in two phases, not dissimilar to uh, how the venture capital industry works in the United States, where there is essentially three phases in the program. Phase one uh, is up to $150,000, and with some exceptions, sometimes up to double that, um, to fund the research. If you are successful with that research, you can apply for phase two, which ups the ante to a minimum, uh, up to a million dollars, in some cases, two and a half times that for research and development. The reason, the reason it's staggered is because you're taking a sort of seed money risk uh, to do the research, and then it's more money to actually test, uh, test out. So in the, you know, it's discovery, de-risking. The third phase is called commercialization. Uh, and in the case of the Department of Defense, because of national security, typically the end of the rainbow on a commercialization standpoint is getting a contract for the Department of Defense. To, you have a sole buyer of your nuclear detonation technology. It's the Department of Defense. So the path to commercialization for a, for a Department of Defense uh, grant is the department of itself giving you a contract to deliver the technology. In the case of um, medicines, the paths are many. You can license it, you can get venture capital, you can get bought, you can try to get more research dollars, right? It doesn't, if you get an SBIR from NIH, it doesn't mean that you can't also get more funding from NIH. It's, in, in many cases, sometimes that happens. Um, so um, for you to get a phase two, you have to have gotten a phase one. So it's a stagger. You can't go directly to phase two. Now, there's some very uh, very specific exceptions that you can look at the website. Uh, but for the most part, you want to go through the process. Um, they're not easy to get. They're very, very competitive programs. Uh, at any given point, we estimate that the ecosystem of STEM professionals participating in the program is about 300 to 400,000 people. It's the single biggest pool of STEM professionals in the world, if you were to kind of put a circle uh, around it. Um, and um, the, one of the Achilles heels of the program, I would say, from, from where I got a lot of beat up from Congress, Right, because since I ran it, I was the one that was lucky enough to go in front of the con Congress and get beaten up, and I did get beat up. I loved it. Oh, by the way, you, you guys want to talk about politics? I'm kidding. <laughs> Who watched the debate last night? You did? Yeah. Well, I worked for, the, for President Obama, but I'm still very intrigued. No, I'm not going to talk about politics. Um, so, um, huh? No, no, I won't. <laughs> this is being recorded. Um, let's just say that it's the entertainment value of what's going on is not only uh, incredibly high, but also deeply concerning. Uh, okay, I'm done. Um, so back to the matter at hand. Um, the business side of this is critical. And one of the things NSF did uh, was adopt something that uh, is termed the lean, basically I-Core, Innovation Core. And it's modeled after the Lean Startup methodology. Has anybody heard about Lean Startup? So NSF basically puts their grantees through this, essentially it's a mini MBA that happens in, depending on the situation, two to six weeks. 
Um, and what they had found was that going through i increases the chances for commercialization. Because you can be the most brilliant scientist in the world, uh, but you don't know what a debit and a credit is. And that's fine. That's fine. You're, that's not what you're getting the grant for. But you need to understand the business side of things. So NSF started piloting this thing, and the numbers basically bear out that the success in commercializing technologies of scientists, researchers, uh, engineers that have gone through i goes up. So when, I saw, when we saw that, I said, well, if NSF is being successful with this, we should try to do, and do that with all of the agencies that have SBIRs. Um, so um, even though the business, and, you know, part of business plans and part of uh, small businesses and entrepreneurial startup endeavors is that business plans always change. But you have to have an initial, think, initial thinking as to what you would do with that technology. Sizing a market, which you know, uh, seems simple, right? Oh, I'm, I got a drug for breast cancer. It's 2 million people, and it's 300,000 new cases a year. So that's my size of the market. Well, it may not be the size of the market, because some of them are untreatable. Some of them can't afford. You have to have a very Showing the thinking process to, for example, size a market, segment a market, knowing how to get into the market, right? So if it's a drug, you got to know how in licensing uh, uh, operations run at big pharma and biotech companies. So knowing how you will pitch it uh, in that commercial endeavor. Um, and I can't stress enough that the price of admission is obviously the science, but a critical part of this is the commercialization uh, plan. Um, in terms of, and this is the last thing I'll say, and then I'm going to open it up for, for questions, because I think that's going to be a better use of your time, um, is that because the program is so competitive, uh, the, the tug and pull I always had with, uh, with Congress was that the people that are really good at writing grants um, end up getting a disproportionate amount of the, uh, of the awards. In other words, uh, this program is not to fund or to employ scientists. Even though that's what it sort of does, that's not the point of the program. And then some, there are some entities that actually are very, very good. They're, they even have a name, SBIR Mills, that are very, very good at getting SBIRs for the sake of getting SBIRs. Their science is amazing, but their business model is actually research and development, not necessarily commercialization. So on the other end of the spectrum is somebody that has never written a grant has very, very strong science. Uh, so how do you create a level playing field for those two groups? Um, because they're so competitive and because we want the biggest amount of diversity in the program, and diversity means um, uh, ethnic diversity, it means gender diversity, and the numbers have gone up, but it's still sad, especially women are getting the majority of degrees right now in the country. Uh, minorities are much more educated, but there's still a very small slice of the, uh, of the research grants. We also want geographic diversity. Right? We're sitting right now in Colombia, and I'm an executive in residence at Colombia Technology Ventures, the licensing arm of the university. Uh, Colombia is the third largest, I think it's the third or second, it's in the top three uh, most successful licensors of technology in the world. MIT, you know, MIT, Stanford, Columbia. So, um, but we want it to be more diverse. There's no reason why a scientist in Boise, Idaho doesn't have the same ability and chance to get the, the, the grants. So it's a very, very complex uh, program to run, but it's easy to conceptualize. So um, if you have a good mousetrap, and you're willing to go through the process, 
there's no, I don't think there's any better very early stage capital for STEM-driven startups than this capital. Oh, and by the way, the last thing I'll say is that because they are so competitive, this is a huge stamp of approval. When you get an SBIR award, it's a huge stamp of approval when you're then going to go pitch, let's say your idea is to go pitch a venture capitalist, having an SBIR under your belt is real. So it gives you an edge. So I'm going to stop right there um, in terms of uh, the program. A bit about myself, and before I joined uh, the government, uh, which was in uh, October 2013, I spent my entire career in the private sector. I actually lived here before I moved to Washington DC, 73rd in Amsterdam. Uh, and I was an engineer on a pharmaceutical company. I was a consultant for two big firms, Booz Allen and McKinsey. Um, and that was kind of the first half of my career. Second half of my career was investing in companies. So I've been a venture capitalist myself. Uh, and I started three companies myself. One massive failure, one sideways, TBD, and one moderate success. So I've seen the movie, and I'm very passionate about these programs because I've written checks to companies, and I've actually tried to get companies off the ground. So I know what the people on the other side feel. Now I'm back in the private sector, so I'm back on the, uh, so I'm back in your side, uh, even though there's really no sides. So I'll leave it at that. Feel free to ask away. If you have any questions, concerns, comments, issues, yep. You may have been on this before. As far as intellectual property goes, when you apply for an SBIR, am I, I walked in late, is this something you already covered? Well, I don't know what the question is. Okay, um, so the US government paid for by the taxpayers yep. and all that. When you apply for an SBIR, does the government then have some sort of interest in your intellectual property, specifically yeah. pharmaceutical drug, and then you take it to market, and then the three-year FDA exclusivity is over, and then the government has an interest in your patent, and then is it then that everybody in the country has an interest in your patent? Uh, the legislation that protects property rights, including intellectual property rights funded by the government, happened decades ago. And essentially, the long story is this. You get a patent. Well, the first question is, do you want to pursue patenting your technology? Because if you patent it, it's public, public information. But if you patent something with, that was funded by SBIR, it's yours. It's not the government has zero claim on the intellectual property. It has zero claim on royalties. It has zero claim on anything that comes out of the commercial uh, path of what was funded, including patents. Now, the question of patenting is a bigger philosophical one, right? Uh, because without it, a lot of people wouldn't take the financial risk, right? I want to in the drug industry. Obviously, you want to protect your uh, your market, and that's the commercial reason to get a patent. But on the other hand, you're opening the kimono. So. Uh, but the, lo the short answer is that the patents, if any, that come out of the research are the property of the people that own the company. So it's the company. It's private property. Um, one more thing on patents. Um, the head of the patent office, her name is Michelle Lee. She used to be the general counsel at Google. Super smart lady. Good friend. She realizes that the patent process is brain damaging sometimes. And uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but I think it's something like 10 million patents in the United States and half a million a year, something like that. The order of magnitude is about right. 10,000 of those, which doesn't sound high, but I'll tell you why it's high. 10,000 of those have been set aside or are being set aside for fast track for small businesses. Out of those 10,000, 1,000 are being set aside for SBIR companies. Now, the total market of SBIRs, so it's two and a half, three billion dollars, and it's about 6,000 grants a year. 5,000 phase one grants, the small but many grants. 1,000 phase two grants, bigger but less grants. Um, 
let's say half of those are patentable technologies, just to say something, 3,000 of those grants. A, th a third of that can go through this fast tech process. So we realize that patents actually create commercial value, so we gotta make it easier for people to attain them. And that was uh, us working with the uh, patent office to figure that out. I don't know if it has been enacted, but it's something to consider. Yep. No, um, a cut, no. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. So there's four ways, basic ways to fund the company. You borrow debt, you raise equity, uh, you sell, right? by selling, you're getting financing, but it's non-dilutive because you're selling. And the fourth one is gifts. Grant, grants are a gift. Uh, and the federal government, just like they have no claim on the intellectual property that comes out of a company, it also has zero claim on the company. Uh, and that is why these, this money is so attractive. It's non-dilutive financing, right? If you borrow, you owe somebody something. If you raise equity, you don't owe them anything, but you lost part of your company, right? True for both. It's true for both. Oh. No. So, so what happens is the the difference between SBIR and STTR. And SBIR is nine times bigger than STTR. So out of the two and a half billion, about 2.2 .2 is SBIR and about 250 million is STTR. The only difference between them is that in SBIR goes directly to the small business concern. STTR is money that's given to an institution, a research institution, and in turn, the research institution funds the small business concerns. But um, I would love for you to point out what you're saying because it, it's, no, no, it's, it's okay. If it is, I'm calling, I'm calling the guy that took my job immediately to tell him that what the hell has happened. But no, no, it's non-dilutive financing, uh, which is the appeal of it. Now, it's free money, right? But it's not really free because you're investing a lot of time to apply, right? So your time is valuable. It's not, it's not monetary. But you can put a value on it, obviously, and people put a money on, a value on every everyone's time with a salary, right? A salary is a call option on your time. Uh, the other thing is that you you get the money, you're required to report, right, to the government, right? You now have the government as a even though they don't own anything, they're a partner because they're funding you, so you have to report on your on your progress and you know some of the reporting requirements. I'm not going to say they're onerous, but they're real. Right, um, but I always say, is it dissimilar to what a venture capitalist would want from you? Right, if you're going to raise money from an angel or a venture capitalist, they're going to want stuff. They may be different stuff, but right, if you're raising money from a third party, if you're not using your own capital to fund your activities, they want something for it. In the case of the United States of America, what they want you to do is solve a technical challenge that advances the priorities of the country. Yeah, yes? I think part of this question is a concern about the government taking IP from a small business. It may not be in the grant in and of itself, but I would almost think that some people would go into that grant application process with the idea that there may be a customer built in at the end of the process, like you said. Say the DOD gives mm -hmm. you a contract after you pass stage three, and then, you might be concerned about what's going to happen to your IP. And this could be especially concerning to a software company or cybersecurity company. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that you know this is kind of a larger story in terms of innovation in the government. The government, uh, especially the DOD in the last year, has been really rethinking 
how they're acquiring innovations. They feel like they've been out-innovated by people with far less funding, and they don't move swiftly enough. They're not light-footed enough, right? And uh, they created the Defense Innovation Unit Experimental, right? And they're trying to, uh, you know, on, on some level, they can't really control what Congress does, but they're trying to change law. Is, is that true? And, and like, when, when should you start being concerned? You know, if, if you buy into the idea that you want to get a contract with one of these agencies, mm -hmm. then the, the concern about IP becomes a little different, and has the laws changed as a result of what's been going on in the last year, like the new approach to Asian development? That is a multi-part uh, question slash comment. So let me comment on, on the, de the Department of Defense and DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, both of which participate in the program. Uh, they're funding something that is in the national security interest. So at the end of the day, those things have commercial applications. And the most famous of them one of them all is ARPANET, which became what we all use every day, then the internet. Right? That was born out of defense research. Uh, the iRobot, everybody heard about this thing? Roomba, it's a little vacuum cleaner that you turn on and you put it in the room and it cleans everything like by itself. It's like this little thing. Um, that was born out of DOD research for a technology they wanted to find to automate mine sweeping, right? They wanted a little thing that went around and doo -doo 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 -doo, right? it sounds like pretty simple technology, it wasn't. So the person that owned that research, once the government gave them the, the okay to commercialize outside of DOD, used that same technology to create the Roomba. That company is now half a billion dollars and employs a thousand people real commercial success. So back to data rights. The biggest concerns on data rights are with DOD. You are completely right. And the reason, the, the, the reason for that is because since at the end of a DOD, typically, at the end of a DOD SBIR, what you want is a contract from DOD. And I'm talking DOD, but it's a map. Well, obviously, it's the big, it's the biggest chunk of our budget, so it's very, very, very big. Um, but in general terms, it's a contract with DOD. Um, you can't do anything else with it. Now, um, the entities that contract with DOD, uh, when you think about DOD contractors, you think about Raytheon, or you think about Donald Douglas, or whatever the very big company is. So what happens is that the small company that has the most amazing technology to solve a drone sighting technology, I'm just making something up, um, they don't have the bandwidth or the capability to supply DOD directly, so they become a sub, a subcontractor, right? You still get the contract, so by becoming a sub of a big one, that's where you get the issues of data rights, because now all of a sudden, uh, you may be forced by the contractor to assign data rights. Now, it's a big, it's something that gets talked about a lot and it's very much on the, on the regulator's uh, view. I don't know about the innovation thing you were talking about that they're doing, but I can tell you that there's three paths as I learned in my short stint in the federal government, to change how the federal government does things. Let's leave politics aside. Let's talk about real, how things get done. First, and the easiest, or the, the ones under people that were like me in the executive branch of the federal government, policy. So once the law or the statute is established, you have some ability to change policies to achieve the goals. Second is regulations. So policy, and these are all very hard to, to change, but policy is the easiest. The next one is regulations. The third one is statute. And statute is the code of law in the United States. So uh, it, what's happening now in Washington, D.C., uh, and has been happening for a long time, whenever there's a two, two branches, of, two different parties in charge of two different branches of government, um, very 
difficult to change statute. So you're pursuing regulations or policies. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a real concern. And I know that there's been a lot of uh, discussions with not only DOD, but with others about data rights. But at the end of the day, um, small businesses end up prevailing because the whole point of this is small business. Now the SBA, uh, even though the check writers may be a microbiologist at NIH, we basically oversee the program, right? So we don't have the scientists, but if somebody has a complaint about, uh, let's say you get one and it happens to you, where they're elbowing you out or they're whatever you think bad may be happening, there's somebody that used to work for me that is in charge of getting all complaints and issues, and we'll fight for you. So our job as a small business administration is to protect small businesses, and sometimes that is against our bro brother and sister agencies, and it's happened. Yeah. So um, you said that the brands get end up they end up getting assigned disproportionately to people that you know are great grant writers. So for someone that's going to be the first time well, disproportionate is was probably the wrong, and actually you can look at the website. Disproportionate was probably the wrong word to use um, because they are so good at the science and so good at grant writing uh, and have long-standing relationships with the people that actually provide the grants, they have an edge. They've been at it for a long time. It's not dissimilar to business. Uh, but on the other hand, one of the things that we did in the reauthorization of the program is put commercialization benchmarks to avoid mills. So if you're a, a small business that invents all kinds of amazing things and creates real technologies that create jobs, we want you to keep doing it. The concern is not bigger entities. They're all small businesses, by the way. For you to apply, you have to be a small business. The concern is that you're doing it just for the research and you're not commercialized. So we said, okay, let's put some commercialization benchmarks in there. And those include, if you've gotten more, if you, if you Google SBIR commercialization benchmarks, you'll see them. If you have gotten more than X amount of SBIRs in the last five years, you must have commercialized technologies. And these are the, and these are the benchmarks, XYZ, patents, companies, funding, sales. If you're not doing it, you're out. So we, by doing that, you're forcing the people that, are, that get 10, 20 SBIRs to actually do something with them. And by forcing that, you're gonna, because some of them may be doing it, you allow more uh, first-time recipients. I also don't remember the number of first-time recipients, but it's not small. I mean, and at the end of the day, you want as much to cast a wide net as possible. I mean, this is just in concert with what I asked. I mean, who would you best recommend to go to to help the application? The SBA, one of these uh, SBR, I don't know, like, <laughs> No, well. about and try and yep. Well, grant writing is an art. There's no question about it. Uh, I would start with, there's tons of webinars. Well, first of all, because there's so many versions and iterations of the SBIR program, there's events all the time everywhere. New York City is the largest city in the United States. Go to one, they're usually free. Uh, talk to the people. You know, develop a relationship of the, you know. One thing, the government is not a black hole, it's people. And I'm, I'm a person, and so we're the people that work in there. So developing a relationship, not a bad thing. Second is if you don't have the time or you'd rather do it in your boxer shorts in your house, awesome. There's tons of um, uh, uh, webinars on everything from how do I make myself more attractive, steps to writing a grant, how to write a grant, best examples of a grant. So, there's all kinds of resources available uh, out there. Are you attached to Columbia? Okay. Um, there's also universities, and we just happen to be sitting at one, but in, the, in, in New York, there's a ton of universities, and they sometimes have talks on 
grant writing and all these things. But grant writing is just one part. You know, if I, it's hard for me to order what's more important, the art of grant writing, the technology and the science, or the business plan. I always think that a very strong application is really good on all three. But the most important thing is the science, that you have a well thought out research plan, that the principal investigator is somebody that can do it. Uh, but um, it's learnable. Writing a grant, let me put it to you this way. Um, learning how to write a grant is a lot easier than learning how to cure cancer. So if you have the mouse trap on the technology side, the other stuff is learnable. Mm -hmm. If it's a, a biotech enterprise, and you said before that the SBIR kind of has a five-year cutoff, you must show production. Um, you know, most drugs will not be approved within five years from yep. inception to the end. So piggybacking off his question, as far as the business plan goes with the grant writing, how far out, and if it's only $150,000 for the first one, how far out uh, do you have to project? Um, that's, a, that's a good question, and you're right. I mean, in the in in the case of a biotech discovery, you're talking about you know by the time you get the patent, you start your clinicals. You're talking seven, eight, nine years, right? Um, the business plan may be, you know, your endpoint is getting venture capital funding. Right, it, it, the way Columbia Technology Ventures in, in this same university take licensing, if you look at the technology, the, the success, the benchmark successes for a licensing office of a university, uh, their benchmark of success is that one of those, well, that out of X number of things that get uh, funded, one makes it out, and that one is not necessarily a product to market, that one success for a licensing entity is actually venture capital funding, which begins another process, right? So in general, 100 technologies are funded, one gets venture capital, I'm just making up numbers, but order of magnitude is about right, and out of 100 venture capital funded technologies, 10 make it out. So. 10, you need 100, it's a, it's a significant amount of risk. So at the end of the day, it's not a, because the paths are so long to, to commercialization, for a doctor to be prescribing your thing, uh, success commercialization is not necessarily prescribing a drug. So, and it depends. I mean, I'll tell you an example of the neurology. Um, and there's a lot of research going on on Parkinson's and, uh, uh, Electro, um, electromagnetic to the brain and all that stuff. And one of the things that NIH wanted to figure out in the Neurology Institute was how to help people with Parkinson's and other uh, neurological diseases that cause tremors to eat with dignity. Nothing to do with a drug, nothing to do with anything. Um, are you familiar with this? Um, one of my friends developed a stabilization spoon. The one that got bought by Google? Okay, that's the, exactly the example I'm using. Um, and uh, he came up with essentially a technology that works like sort of, sort of like the Segway, right? That keeps you upright and all that stuff, but it's a mini version of that so that it counteracts the tremors. You go like this, it goes like this, it, it reduces something like 75% of the tremor. So if you have a normal spoon, you're going like this, the food is gonna go out. Here, you're still tremoring, but you can eat with dignity. It was an amazing success, but the reason I bring that up is because his time to market was very fast, but it was expensive. And um, the potential, and he got to market very quickly. He actually used part of the money to design the package in which the uh, uh, Lift Labs, if the name of the company, um, designed the package in which it's a consumer product. Right? You don't need a prescription, it's a consumer product. It looks like, a, like an iPhone, you know, white packaging, super slick, very simple design. Um, Google said, oh my God, if I buy this thing, I can decrease the price from like $1,500 where it started to nothing. And now Google owns this technology and it costs, I don't know what it costs now, but it's like $149, accessible to everybody. And the path for that NIH funded thing 
to hit, you know, first is you started selling, that for the government is amazing. But to get bought by somebody like Google, and it doesn't have to be Google, to, to get the ability to put as many of these things out is amazing. So, you know, there's, there are pockets of things in there that are actually, that the path to, uh, to complete commercialization is not as long. Yeah, that's a cool product. That's a very cool product. Also, a first time SPIR album. Yep, thank you. Arun, right? What was his name? Arun. Uh, yeah, he, he, he's an outlier, that's for sure. Because, you know, obviously, in, like in everything, uh, there's a connection, you know, serendipity and skill, and everything just happened, right? And uh, but we use that example, actually, all the, I used to use it all the time because it's so easy to grasp the concept. Um, anything else? Questions, concerns, issues? The SBIR is completely separate than other branches of government that are also offering funding, right? So in that previous example, you said mm -hmm. um, five years, and then you want to get to venture capital. What if it was five years venture capital or another branch of the NIH that's acceptable as well? Um, well, typically, you don't want to double dip. It's like getting a tax credit from the IRS and then getting a... Uh, and then getting a break on funding for somebody else, typically you don't want to, the government doesn't want people double dipping, but uh, that said, sometimes technologies need a lot more money before they're ready for commercialization, and it's not, and we would view, that I would view person, I'm talking Javier the person, I would view something that is capped at $2 million for somebody at NIH to say, wow, if we put $10 million towards this, I would view that as a success, even though you're actually attracting more money. So it's, the SBIR is a slice of the total budget. So NIH, uh, extramural, the NIH total budget for research is something like 28 billion, something like that. 21-ish is extramural budget, so given out to people outside of the federal government. 3% of that, give or take, is what the SBIR is. So it's the same budget. It's the same R&D budget, trying to solve the same exact problems. It's just, it's, that part is set aside for small businesses to participate. Because if not, you would have very large, it's much easier for a grant maker to put, imagine, 20 some billion dollars to work in $100 million chunks versus $150,000 dollar chunks, but that's what the brilliance, I think the brilliance of the program is that you're essentially sort of forcing the agencies to open up that pool of capital, and it's amazing, $130 billion total spent to small businesses. Some agencies view it as a tax, right? Some agencies say, well, this is, I'll just put the 2.9%, let's just do it. I'm not, I'm not saying that they're, their exact attitude, but it's very difficult to achieve. Now, the flip side of that is that where does innovation typically, typically, where has innovation typically happened in the last 30 years in the United States? Big companies or small entrepreneur? Right, it's a, it's a rhetorical question because in the 70s, everything changed, right? Before it was, Big companies like DuPont, which invented Teflon, or General Electric, which invented the light bulb, and all these things, it was big companies that had the resources, the people, the government. And in the 70s, things started to break up. Venture capital started to get legs, right? So the pools of capital got atomized. Uh, entrepreneurship started to become a career path, right? Entrepreneurship before that was something you did when you got fired from the big company. And now it's like people don't want to, you know, especially millennials, and I see most of you are millennials here, they don't want to go work for a big thing. They want to either start their own thing or join a small thing or whatever. So entrepreneurship is actually a career path. So that changed. Also, um, the government, uh, as big a lumbering thing it is, uh, and a bigger machine it is to steer in the right direction, um, I can tell you that under my previous boss, there's been a lot of things done to try to figure out how to make all the funding more inclusive. And when people think about inclusive, people think about 
um, very underserved communities like the South Bronx or Crenshaw in a way, like it's easy to, uh, or a very rural community in Alabama, everybody thinks about underserved on the lens of poverty and social justice, but underserved happens in every uh, field of endeavor and in the field of what we're talking about here, small businesses are underserved. So this is a great program to get, without lowering any bars, I may add, because a lot of people, when they think about set-asides, people think about, well, it's affirmative action. I'm gonna lower the bar, right? And I, I personally take offense to that because I'm Puerto Rican. So I don't want you to lower the bar, right? I just want the same access everybody else has. So, um, it's something that, uh, that has been very important to, to the president. And, um, and I think that's going to con hopefully continue because the, the business case makes sense, right? So it's, it's, very e it's very easy argument for us to make to the agencies, NIH, NSF, to say, get really good at SBRRs because this is where the, this is where the real innovation happens in the country anyway. So, you got me excited. Um, and it was a definite privilege to, to have been inside. And I encourage anybody here to think about doing a stint or even doing a career with the government. I know that sounds like, <laughs> no, I wanna go to, I want to go to Silicon Alley. Well, you are in Silicon Alley. I want, I want to do something cool. There's a lot of cool stuff happening in, inside, so. You know, uh, <laughs> it's funny because um, uh, late 2012, um, I decided to make a change in my and my job, I used to be a, um, a managing director at a private equity firm here in New York. And my wife had just made partner at a, at a marketing agency called Saatchi. And she was like, well, I'm done with the big company thing. And I'm like, well, my equity is vested in most of myself. Let's take some time off. So to think about what the next stage is going to be, it's like, well, we're thinking of moving out west. And we remember we lived in 73rd and Amsterdam, so we Airbnb'd our place or, well, the RBO, one of those, we, we use technology. Uh, and then we went west and we literally spent the winter skiing in Colorado, which was amazing. I'm probably the best Puerto Rican skier you'll ever meet, which is not saying much because, you know, we don't have snow down there where I grew up. But I got a random, pretty much a random reach out from the White House. And I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but I think that, uh, they had a very overt, and especially in the second term of the president, to bring more diversity broadly defined into the uh, into the the government. And I would say that the the political appointees, so the federal government is like three million people or something like that, and political appointees, the people that essentially run the government, there's like six thousand. The top, I would say, well. Out of the 6,000 appointees at the bottom level, so advisors uh, and stuff like that, um, it's pretty diverse. You know, women, minorities, uh, veterans, um, uh, all, kinds of, all kinds of things, disabled. But when you get to, I was sub-cabinet, right? So my boss reported directly to the president. And once you get to my, my level, for example, um, there were only like 20 uh, Latinos at my level. And cabinet secretaries, there were three uh, Latinos out of, I don't know, 30. Um, so it's very difficult to try to do it. And I just happened to get on some list because somebody thought I'd be stupid enough to take it. And I did take it. And it was great. I encourage everybody to serve your country. How long? Uh, two years and two months. I just recently left and I actually, one of the things I'm doing in my transition is actually I'm an executive in residence here at Columbia, at Columbia Technology Ventures, uh, where they have, I think it's something like six or seven uh, executives from the private sector helping, you know, 
people in Colombia, companies in Colombia, uh, most of my talks <laughs> or most of the discussions I have with companies are around the SBIR for obvious reasons. Uh, uh, but it's it's a great uh, it's a great experience and uh, it's a short term thing. So. Thank you for listening. For more information on Columbia Technology Ventures, visit techventures.columbia.edu.